Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Castle Bridge podcast. Uh, we're here working together, but working remotely. And we put together another uh, podcast episode for everybody uh, to talk about some stuff that's happening in the world that is not COVID-19. The key topic for today is consent, uh, given that the European Data Protection Board has recently issued updated guidance on this topic, and Katie and Josh have been looking at that for us over the past few days. So without further ado, uh, Katie, tell us all about consent. I think um, the issue of online consent is very interesting since the GDPR has been quite clear that it is only one of the um, legal requirements for processing of data, but it can cover a lot of different areas. So, for example, you've got the consent of um, children and then you've got consent, the issues of withdrawing consent. So I think that it's um, a large topic for us to to get into. Yeah, so there's a couple of, couple of topics there in terms of uh, consent, uh, getting it in the first place, um, and the idea that you have to be able to withdraw your consent as easily as you gave it. That raises some interesting challenges around designing user interfaces and designing processes and things like that. And then there's the fun and games around consent uh, for children. But it's important to bear in mind within that, that the requirement for uh, verification of consent for children under Article 8 of GDPR only applies to information society services. And that Mm -hmm. is a term that is very clearly defined in EU Uh, directives and regulations elsewhere and that's a topic for another day i suspect when you guys were looking at at the at the the guidance katie and josh Mm. what jumped out at you in terms of the, the the criteria for getting consent in the first place i think um there's terms that we see in the um new document that was published things like um bundling or um tying or granularities. There's lots of um, ideas that have now been more further defined. For example, you can't now bundle consent just with acceptance of terms and conditions. There's the idea that it has to be freely given and understandably freely given. So not kind of, yeah, exactly, bundled with something. So that's that's interesting. Yeah, again, that's something that's in, it was very clear from GDPR, um, mm. but it's it's good to see it restated and clarified that that bundling things together and, and combining stuff under one tick box is not the, the best way to do it. Again, that's the way we've been teaching it to clients for even pre-GDPR. We're highlighting that structuring your, your, your modeling for permissions and consent and how you design that process is really, really important for organizations to get right uh, rather than taking a lazy one tick box fits all approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joshua, did you see anything in the in the guidance that jumped out at you as a a key cause for for concern or alarm or awareness, etc.? At this point, um, it's a useful note that's been put together here, but a lot of it is reaffirming principles that have been established over the past year, um, past two years really since GDPR has come into force. Um, some really important elements. One of them, though, that's um, necessary is the notion that abdicating responsibility um, to market forces just isn't good enough. The idea that I can say I have the right to do this because if you don't want to consent, you can just take your business out there elsewhere. You can find someone else who can, you know, 
provide the same services to you without requiring it. There's another news website. There is another store you can go to that processes your, your data in a different way. And the document really put together by the European um, Data Protection Board in this way really puts it out that freedom of choice can't be made dependent on what other market players do and with an individual data subject would find someone else's ability. So that's simply not good enough. Um, other things that I think much are going to be very tricky in practice is actually ensuring that withdrawal of consent is as simple as giving consent to begin with. That's something that uh, has been the case, again, even pre-GDPR, actually, uh, one of my first uh, interactions with the Data Protection Commissioner uh, as a uh, you know, baby data geek uh, getting into qu questions of privacy was actually making a complaint about my mobile provider at the time that uh, was regarding, first of all, a uh, 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 call uh, advertising for uh, services that I you know, had not opted into, but also the fact that when I tried to opt out, I couldn't do it in, the, in a way that I would you know, have been able to do it. I would have had to make a phone call uh, as opposed to an SMS message, uh, and it was a you know, making it more difficult for me to opt out of something that I had never opted into to begin with. Uh, so th this is, again, not new, but it's good to see consistent reiteration of those same principles. Uh, and uh, frankly, not bending to the constant communications, uh, trying to pressure uh, the uh, way that we're doing things or the standards by which we should be doing things in a uh, way different to what the legislation says that we have been consistently seeing from various advertising bodies. How does this consent topic feed into the discussion of cookies? Because the Data Protection Commission uh, last month published their revised guidance on cookies uh, coming out of their, their recent cookie sweep. Um, do these two documents go hand in hand? Is, the, is there any conflict between uh, the DPC's uh, cookies guidance and what we're seeing on consent coming out of the European, De European Data Protection Board? I think one of the things that we can say there is there is a clear uh, gap between the standards that are required by not just the legislation, but now the guidance on consent and what we see in uh, a lot of the uh, consent for cookies that is asked for on various websites, all those lovely banners that we either click on or ignore. So uh, I did uh, ask uh, Josh and Katie to look at that a little bit this week and see what they saw. <laughs> I mean, you've seen a convergence here around the issue of cookies. Um, clearly, the, one of the things that we found from this document um, is that the cookie banners are a great recurring instance of an example. You know, of an example where consent is not actually given. That there are too many ways in which cookies are provided. That an example actually given directly in this document that it says, you know, a website provider puts into place a script for block content. And it goes, there's no possibility of access to content without clicking accept cookies button. That is not consent in any meaningful way um, or any form whatsoever. The other part of it that you see in this is that the Data Protection Commission of Ireland released its survey of um, for two, last month, actually, of the way in which cookies are used. And a review of anonymized their results of who they were actually reviewing and what was found. But one of them is just they gave, give also copy paste elements of 
bad cookie banners, you know, using their terms, the idea that an idea where you cannot consent in any meaningful way, you can't withdraw it, you have no options. That is not, in fact, an example of consent. And sadly, this is something that we that it's not easy to achieve for many organizations and, frankly, government organizations at, at, and departments at present, that you'll find the examples given by the Dollar Protection Commission of, like, this is just unacceptable use of um, cookie policies. You'll find as bad, if not worse, versions on key government websites in the same country. And maybe it just highlights the just how much is how much of the lack of knowledge is going to create more problems when even your government can't achieve compliance. Um, I, I think um, you've, t- you've touched on a key point there, Josh. A lot of this is down to knowledge and understanding and applying appropriate design approaches to building your, your the user experience around cookies. Uh, one of the difficulties we have is that um, a lot of the design patterns that have developed uh, as standard models um, across the industry have to an extent been implemented to somewhat frustrate the intent of the legislation uh, rather than keeping in line with the spirit of the legislation, uh, which is to give people meaningful choices. Uh, what we saw coming out of the, what I, what I took away from the, the Data Protection Commission's cookie sweep uh, was a very clear message that the design practices need to improve to ensure that they are better aligning with uh, good standards. And if you look at the European Data Protection Board and European Data Protection Supervisor websites, they actually have a, a pretty good model for uh, f- for capturing meaningful consent for cookies in line with the very the, the case law and in line with their the guidance on cookies. And it'd be interesting to see how the design patterns evolve uh, as organizations work to put their house in order, uh, particularly around cookies. And any uh, organization in Ireland that is concerned about their cookies, I could rec- I would recommend downloading the DPC's uh, guidance and having a look at it, and then seeing what you're do- seeing how you were doing things with cookies on your on your website, um, and also in any apps that you were using, any smartphone apps, they also fall within the general definition. And take some, make some efforts now to put your house in order because once the guidance is published, that is what the DPC audits and investigates against. And I suspect that the approach they will be taking going forward is very much a desk audit and desk investigation approach where because the standard is there, because the expectations for the design are there, they will be reaching out to organizations and asking them to justify questionable design patterns or or, or deviations from that standard. And the only way you can really answer those questions properly is by having a handle on what you're doing and thinking about the design and also thinking about your customer. This isn't about legislation. This is about your customer. What are you doing for them? How are you doing it? What are you doing with their data? At the end of the day, that's the key thing here from a pragmatic perspective. Uh, we have to think about this from a customer experience perspective. The cookies and consent piece leads us into the discussion then of registers of of processing activities. We've been doing a bit of noodling around them the last few months uh, in various various perspectives um, with clients and also with internal research. And the focus on consent, and as Katie highlighted, the European Data Protection Board clarifying that it's just one of the bases that you can rely on for processing. 
uh, it really brings to the fore some of the importance of registers of processing activities. Uh, Peter, you've been suspiciously quiet uh, on this podcast, very unlike you. Um, what's your thoughts on registers of processing activities in this regard? A uh, highly useful activity to allow you to understand where your data is, what you do with it, and how you use it. Okay, you've nailed it in a nutshell. Uh, it's the map. It, it it also helps you identify why you were using it and what, what basis you'd be relying on for that. And I think any organization that's looking at the consent guidance uh, from the EDPB should really go back and have a look in their registry of processing activities to see where they are claiming consent as the sole basis for processing and make sure that they are complying with that. That's a useful health check you can do internally. Catherine, any thoughts on that? Yeah, that is important for your web uh, design. Uh, among other things, it, what are you using cookies for? So you don't need to get consent for cookies if it, they're required for the functioning of the website. So if your cookies are, for instance, for a, uh, a, a shopping basket because you're selling things online, that is not going to require consent. You just need to tell people you're using cookies for this purpose. Now, if you're doing analytics on the side of that, uh, that's not necessary for the functioning of the website. It might be in your legitimate interest to do so, but you can't rely on legitimate interest. You have to rely on consent there. So you need to know what you're using cookies for. Having a register of processing activities will help you to figure out we're doing this particular thing, setting this cookie for this purpose. Here's what we do with the data. Here's why we need it. This is our lawful basis. Yeah, and it's not just cookies. Um, contact tracing apps. I was very surprised during the, the last week or two when I saw that the HSC were saying that the Irish contact tracing app was not going to be made available to people under the age of 16 because of the digital age of consent. And this goes back to Katie's point earlier on about consent and consent for children. Um, in the EDPB guidance, what does it say at the moment on consent about children, Katie? So similar to um, what the GDPR says is that we must make a special attention to the processing of data for children because they may be less aware of the risks and consequences and safeguard and safeguards concerned and their rights in relation to processing of personal data. So they are special a special category. So to gain informed consent for a child, um, first, the controller must explain in language that is clear and plain for children for the way that it intends to process the data it collects. So there can't be the kind of jargon or um, higher vocabulary uh, when it's aimed at children. And if it is a more complicated type of consent. You can gain consent from the um, parent or guardian of the child. The, um, the guidance does state that it can be in the form of an email. But again, this all depends upon the, um, the balance of uh, proportionate like harm. So if there is uh, more harm at stake for the child, then the protections are going to be higher. So an email might not be um, sufficient. Um, but again, we see the idea that there must be not excessive data processing. So I think, again, it's just a, it's a balance between the safeguarding the child and also keeping to the other areas of GDPR, like data minimization and um, purpose of processing. Uh, the question that you had there, Katie, with other areas of GDPR, I think that's what mm -hmm. we're concerned here with the contact tracing app, because mm -hmm. 
is it actually consent that we're relying on or are we doing this in order to you know, uh, promote pro public health in the midst of a pandemic? So we have different uh, lawful processing conditions for processing particularly special category personal data for the purposes of public health and uh, controlling epidemics. So uh, why are we suggesting that consent is necessary uh, in the context of contact tracing? We have a separate lawful basis for public health. And that brings us straight back to the importance of register processing activities and what it requires you to do, what it encourages you to do is to stop and think about what it is you're doing with data, why you're doing it, and what is the basis you're relying on for doing it. And again, walking in the shoes of the, the customer, walking in the shoes of the data subject and thinking about how are you communicating that? How are you explaining that? The EDPB guidance uh, in relation to communicating uh, the transparency obligations to children, again, it's completely in line with GDPR and the uh, intelligibility criteria and accessibility criteria for your uh, fair processing notice. But again, it's putting the customer at the center, not thinking about this as data or technology, but it's about people and how you're interacting with them and how you're building trust and awareness of what's being done with data. So there may be a very good reason for the HSE to not want to download an app onto children's phones because they're communicating things like you've been in, you know, exposed to a disease. We want you to contact our health authorities to uh, trace your contacts. That might be something that you don't want an 11-year-old child to be getting push notifications on. But that's a different form of communication and it's a different purpose for processing. So it's, again, it's stepping back thinking, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? How is the best way we can design this to get what we need to do done in the best way possible? Exactly. And it's something that we've done quite a bit of research on in the last month or two. And uh, next week we'll be publishing a white paper that's an executive summary of uh, the, the latest iteration of that research. Um, one of the key points on this is that it's all about designing the process and thinking about what it is you want to do with the data. What's the outcome you're trying to achieve? Finally, um, keeping on in line with the theme of consent um, and the fact that we're all working remotely now, which we have an unfair advantage here in Castlebridge. We've, we've been kind of doing this remote working thing on and off for a number of years. Um, but there's a growing number of organizations who are suddenly having to embrace remote working. And Peter, it's not just a technology thing when people start working remotely. It's not give them a laptop and send them to home to work on the couch. There is a, an organizational design piece to this as well. And monitoring of employees and how we manage employees remotely is uh, a key area of strategy for organizations going forward to make sure we're using the right information in the right way. That's certainly correct, uh, and you know, at a very basic level, you, know, the, 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 you have to have a slightly different management style uh, when you're remotely uh, managing teams, uh, as opposed to when you're physically managing teams. Uh, for you know, for example, uh, you know, you, when you have a remote team, uh, you can't physically walk among them to make sure that they're working and to get a feel for the atmosphere, to understand uh, the levels of morale and you know where you might be uh, in various team building models. 
so th there are slightly different management skills involved in the management of remote workers, uh, and you probably need to shift to some slightly different metrics uh, when, when you are uh, managing remote teams, and you also need to take into account, uh, you know, particularly for many organisations today, uh, you know, that you've moved. Uh, from a scenario where you have people on your premises using your machines, your equipment, your electricity, uh, your tea, uh, and you've moved into a scenario where none of that, where that is no longer true. So many of the ground rules have changed. Uh, people need to be very, very aware of these changing ground rules, uh, particularly and yeah, and, and particularly when they're trying to understand what their team is doing. Uh, yeah, Castlebridge is lucky. You know, we've always worked. Uh, on a model uh, of deliverables, uh, and that's you know, for the most part the way that all consulting firms work. Uh, you know, uh, you know, the people's targets are based on the projects that they're working on, and you know, you know, all targets are based on delivering on-time info. Uh, but for organisations that have a slightly different setup, yes, they'll have to think very carefully about their strategy and how they go forward uh, in what is likely to be the new normal. Uh, certainly in both the Republic and the UK, there doesn't seem to be any danger of anybody going back to work before September. And I think that's, that's one of the key things. And organizations are starting to roll out various tools and technologies to measure and monitor people. I, I'm reviewing a number of them over the past couple of weeks. Um, I, I hark back to my call center management days and the... Uh, the difficulties people might have, again, the bad practices that we see from call center management where people are being tr often treated as units of production in a battery farm. Um, some of those same types of techniques, metrics and measures are, are, are very easy to implement uh, with technologies uh, for people working remotely. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're a good idea. Um, one of the reasons that the, the dynamic and the paradigm for privacy here has changed because the workplace, the line between work and home is different. Katie, um, do you have any thoughts on that? Given that's one of your research th threads with the Adapt Center, is that the, the privacy paradigm perspective? Yeah, I think with the privacy paradigm, we're looking at um, the benefits towards both the individual and the organisation. So the um, the cost and benefit analysis between the two. So where people may have differing um, ambitions in this so the individual might want to really preserve their privacy whilst at the same time the organization or the online um, environment might be wanting to produce um, a large amount of of work for a given time and purpose and want to ensure that they can make sure of it to live up to their standards so you've got a kind of again I keep coming back to the word balance a balance between the two so I think with this and the work that I've been doing, I think it's interesting, Catherine also was, um, we were talking about it in the week, the idea that when you do want to create this balance, what is the best way of doing it? And uh, Catherine mentioned a few studies which actually show that the more trust you give, the better productivity. And where this privacy paradigm is, you both want productivity and respect for the individual privacy. And if the more trust um, kind of way of working with people produces more productivity, it would be very worth looking into further. 
Yeah, this is something that we have a couple decades worth of research on at this point, uh, looking into electronic surveillance of uh, employees in the workplace. And uh, generally, the uh, consensus that I've seen in various workplaces is that uh, when it comes to the idea of wanting to ensure that you uh, have consistent productivity, workplace surveillance does not actually help as much as you'd think. The, the monitoring uh, is the equivalent of having someone stand over someone's shoulder constantly, and particularly if you're looking at complex types of work that needs to be done, that uh, has an inhibiting effect on people's ability to do complex functions. So uh, a lot of the time, this you know, feeling that, oh, maybe our employees are going to cheat us out of the time we're paying for, we need to watch them and make sure they're at the computer all the time, is not actually the best way to go. If you want them to be able to actually do their job, having a uh, more relaxed, trusting uh, managerial style remotely uh, is also better than uh, standing over their shoulder constantly all day long. Josh, in terms of the the different models and, and, and relationships and actors in a privacy model, um, does remote working throw up anything interesting there in terms of the things that would be different from uh, the, the traditional office environment and that people need to be considering? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, one thing, as Peter mentioned earlier, is that you're, when you're used to working within your standard office scenario, it's on the employer's terms. It's within the office with the coffee paid for, the space paid for. The expectations of privacy are very different towards having, let's say, calls with my as myself as the employee, within having a call with my employer where maybe now the environment is one that um, video calls require that, you know, I can my own private space can be seen, what I drink, how I present myself, things there. So it's all of a sudden this model is very much changing. It's not me walking as a separate entity walking into a larger office space, but it's rather that my space is now being given up for my employer um, and my company and being able to manage that successfully also it requires greater degrees of trust, but also um, the, the potential to invade greater degrees of privacy is just so much higher. Um, and to be able to, you know, to get both to preserve the rights of and expectations of both sides in that relationship is just a very critical factor. Um, anything, again, it's going to be dependent. It's very difficult to do on the day that you start remote working. If there's a poor relationship of trust, I as an employee have far less reason to try and give my all to towards working and really making sure that I'm maximizing my time. But I'm also going to be much far more apprehensive towards anything that might reveal anything of my personal life um, that might come into the space of mine. I think this is where unique challenges start abounding. Um, and as we look to a reality where this could be something that we all have to make use of increasingly, even as we start going back to work, where many organizations are looking at a, pro, at a rotational basis or having different sorts of shifts and sending people home more often to ensure that some level of social distancing can still be achieved. This great degree of employee trust is going and employer trust, something that's going to be far more important than any quick fix that you might be able to buy online that's going to take your employees' temperatures or tell you what you need to know about their work routines. 
Uh, I'm not going to put anyone on the spot and ask you how how well you think we're doing, um, but I will go back to Peter kind of to, cl- to close this topic out uh, as the, the two cynical old old, old managers uh, on the team here. Ultimately, Peter, it's 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 about picking what you need to measure to know that people are doing their job. Would you take? Would you agree with that? Uh, certainly, yes. Uh, you know, we still have a need to know how people are doing their job, even if, when we can't see them. Uh, was some of what Josh was talking about reminded me of an old-fashioned uh, sort of idea called the psychological contract, uh, and what it is, what it, what it is uh, that employers and uh, employees believe uh, the, so the the sort of overall deal is, uh, and this whole new environment is certainly changing that. Uh, in terms of where work is done and I suppose going forward uh, in terms of who pays the rent for where that work is done. Uh, but, uh, you know, cer- certainly as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, we need to know how people are doing. We, we need to know that work is progressing. Uh, but you can't apply the same heavier touch that you might be able to apply, you know, inside uh, the your inside an organization's building uh, when people are moving, you know, further apart. And also, you know, we need to consider new ways and, you know, how, you know, how necessary the old ways were. Uh, I would certainly, looking forward, predict that our uh, travel budget will significantly go down uh, because there will be less reason uh, to have to visit clients physically in the new paradigm i think i think on behalf of the rest of the team i think is we're, we're just shocked at how we you're actually you, you've shown over the past few weeks you're able to make your own tea peter um something that would not have happened in the physical on-premise office one of the key things that you kind of hit the nail on the head here that or a few minutes ago there it's not just about the productivity or the performance it is about the people and it, the guidance we've issued uh, last night on remote monitoring of employees um we actually include two sections on culture change and on needing to think about your management style. And I put in two quotes from Tom Peters, the, the management guru. Uh, one of the quotes is that the magic formula for, for that successful businesses have discovered is that you treat your customers like guests and your employees like people. Uh, one of the things you need to watch out for with these sorts of remote monitoring technologies is that you, you're, you run the risk of treating your employees like units of production and not people. And when we're working remotely and when we're at a distance, it's actually really important as a manager, uh, as a leader in an organization to reach out and connect with your people to make sure that they're they're doing okay, not just from a productivity perspective, but also just from a personal perspective. Because again, it's those root causes of issues, things that you might pick up on intuitively if you're seeing people on a day-to-day basis. Um, You need to actually make a bit more effort to reach out and connect to people to see those things to make sure that people are, are are doing okay and again another tom peters quote the simple act of paying positive attention positive attention to people has a great deal to do with productivity so again paying positive attention and thinking about what it is we need to measure and why and trusting people it comes back to trust at the end of the day because if we don't trust what's being done and if in a, particularly in a workplace environment where it is highly unlikely that an employer will be able to rely on consent as a basis for processing for a lot of these employee monitoring technologies that are being deployed. Uh, it's really important that a good DPIA is done, that you include uh, the employee monitoring as part of your ROPA. 
and that you're able to communicate clearly to employees what's being done in terms of remote monitoring uh, so that they can trust what's happening and they know what's involved. And that that's the key thing going forward. So before we wrap, any other closing comments from anybody before we finish the podcast today? Yeah, that's just important to remember along the lines of both measuring productivity and particularly on the lines of remembering this is people that we're talking about, that uh, we're in the middle of a rather traumatic crisis time period. Uh, productivity is likely to go down having nothing to do with uh, the fact that we're working remotely, but having everything to do with the fact that our lives have been massively disrupted and that we have uh, you know, a lot of uncertainty and anxiety and that we are uh, trying to work in very adverse circumstances right now, all of us, and uh, remembering that, being sensitive to each other, and again, creating those human connections to help each other is extremely important. And just to be a cynical old, old curmudgeon on this, just because we're working remotely, I saw some re- a report during the week that uh, Irish workers were doing an extra 38 hours a week uh, working remotely. Um, Employers who are letting are letting their staff do that or requiring their staff to that to do that need to really check their obligations under the Organization of Working Time Act. Uh, we have to bear in mind that even if we're working remotely, people are still allowed a period of time between work shifts to rest and recuperate and enjoy what little physical space they have access to at the moment. I think on that point, Dara, there's um, from a purely like employee perspective, you might find a comfort when you went into work that your employers could see you working. So when you're an employee and you're working at home, you might almost feel the opposite, that you feel like um, a need to kind of prove that you're working. So really going away from the idea of a surveillance in to working at home, but the other perspective of, oh, wow, no one can see me. How do I prove to my employer that I'm still working at the level that they expect could also be a point. That's an excellent point, Katie, and very well made. There are definitely two perspectives on the employee monitoring uh, discussion. There's the needs of the organization and needs of the employer to understand the productivity of staff and to measure it in an appropriate way. But as you rightly point out, there's also the need for employees to raise their hand and say, look at me, I'm doing a good job. Um, And that's where appropriately designed management techniques and management approaches rather than purely metrics driven and measurement techniques come into their own. So that's the end of another podcast. We've talked about consent. We've talked about cookies. We've talked about registers of processing activities, and we've talked about employee monitoring. We've talked about the psychological contract between the employer and the employee in the new normal. Just a typical lighthearted day at the Castlebridge office. Our guidance on employee monitoring is available at castlebridge.ie slash whitepapers. And we'll be back before long with another podcast. Thanks for listening.